This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our objectives uh, today, uh, basically we would want to make sure that everyone feels comfortable with the um, sort of variety of medical conditions that physical therapists uh, can treat and address. We'd also like people to feel really comfortable about how physical therapists maximize movement, reduce pain, restore function, and help prevent future injury and medical conditions. Now, some of you may be more familiar with physical, what physical therapy looks like and feels like, while others may only have a sort of inkling of what it's really like. I hope all of you can bear with me for a little while as I spend just a bit of time discussing the evolution of physical therapy toward the practice and profession as it stands in order to give you a really good impression of how physical therapy can apply and really make people feel better and move better. So talking about what is physical therapy, or more importantly, how it started, the origins were sort of going back as far as uh, physicians like Hippocrates and Galen, who uh, were really the first practitioners of physical therapy advocating for massage, manual therapy techniques, and hydrotherapy as far back as 460 B.C., Physical therapy in the U.S., however, really started during the First World War when women were recruited as reconstruction aides. And uh, around that time is when we actually became, uh, sorry, the physical therapists in America formed the first professional association in 1921, after which it had evolved into the American Physical Therapy Association, or APTA. So currently, the practice of physical therapy has three sort of fundamental uh, focuses, foci, I should say. The first and most obvious being patient care. Physical therapists examine, evaluate, and treat patients who have a condition affecting their ability to move freely and without pain. The second area is research, in much the same way that physicians now uh, are evolving their body of knowledge for medical care. Physical therapists are focused on evidence-based practice, which really means applying science to determine the most effective ways to promote health. And finally, the third arm is uh, physical therapy education, which is an extensive training in anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, and kinesiology during a three-year post-baccalaureate program that culminates in a clinical doctorate degree. So based on these foundations, then, and by committing to confidential uh, relationships with clients, an ethical code, and a commitment to helping society in general, the field of physical therapy has really evolved to meet the six essential criteria to become a profession. So what does this mean for you as an educated consumer of medical care? Well, it means that you should expect a professional level of care from a physical therapist. You should also discuss openly with your physical therapist the risks and benefits of physical therapy. And as you can see in this sort of diagram here, we really do think that the risks are far outweighed by the benefits in physical therapy. While no technique is completely free of risks, we're happy to report that really the risks associated with physical therapy are few and temporary. The most commonly being reported would be symptoms during treatment, perhaps after, that might be a, an increase in pain, perhaps more dizziness, maybe fatigue. The other uh, possible um, risks might be a fall or maybe even stress during an actual treatment activity. But again, most of the time we really feel like we have a good handle on how to make those risks minimized and we really can capitalize on the benefits. So the first being uh, maximizing movement. Again, we really uh, understand that maximal movement or optimal movement improves one's quality of life, ability to earn a living, and independence. So physical therapists are movement experts who can identify, diagnose, and treat movement disorders. Second, physical therapy facilitates 
uh, participation in recovery. One of the basic tenets of physical therapy is that we really need to involve and work collaboratively with patients to design treatments that are individualized to their challenges, their needs, and their goals. Third, physical therapy can help reduce medication use because overuse of addictive prescription painkillers is becoming a national public health epidemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, is urging healthcare professionals as well as patients to reduce the use of opioid pain medications in favor of safer alternatives like physical therapy. And finally, physical therapy can help people avoid surgery. Problems like low back pain due to dis- degenerative disc disease, osteoarthritis of the knee, and even rotator cuff tears of the shoulder have been shown to respond as well or better to, than surgery. In addition, while, while, when surgery is necessary, physical therapy can optimize the recovery uh, and gains from these surgical procedures. As a consumer, you should also know that in addition to serving as a crucial component of medical interventions, the practice of physical therapy also involves um, the proactive approach towards wellness in which we're focusing on preventing injuries and chronic conditions. I'd also like to highlight a few thought processes that I think are unique to physical therapy and I think will come to light as you uh, listen to our our upcoming lectures. First, because physical therapists focus on treatment of movement problems rather than diagnoses per se, we can help people cope with medical issues even when there is no definitive medical cure. So, for example, physical therapy is a critical part of care for patients with multiple sclerosis as well as after strokes. Similarly, because physical therapists use a, problem, a problem-based approach to healthcare, we not only help we not only help people rehabilitate from temporary movement problems like ankle sprains, we also are able to help patients compensate or deal with movement problems. Sorry, even when medical issues may be progressive. So, for an example, we may be able to help patients who are diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. So in summary, we want to make sure that the points that come across from our series of lectures are that physical therapy is a healthcare profession dedicated to maximizing outcomes related to movement, that the benefits of physical therapy outweigh the risks in the majority of times, and physical therapy practice involves prevention as well as treatment for a wide variety of conditions. So thank you very much for your attention, and I'd like to bring forward our speakers. Just want to welcome you to Mini Medical School, and I'm excited to talk about this topic. It's called the brain-body connection in neurorehabilitation. Um, I know it's a topic that's near and dear to our hearts because we primarily work with this population in the clinic. Um, so, um, just we have a couple of learning objectives, um, things that we're going to talk about today. So, um, we're going to describe the role of exercise and how it affects the brain. Uh, We're going to highlight 10 principles required to stimulate this concept of neuroplasticity, which we'll talk about. Uh, We're going to talk about key diagnoses and associated symptoms in the neurologic population. And we're going to discuss various exercises, interventions, activities that promote this idea of neuroplasticity in these diagnoses. So we all know exercise is good for the body. Um, Exercise is beneficial in controlling our weight. Uh, reducing um, cardiovascular disease, um, managing diabetes, um, reducing the risk of cancer, strengthening bones, improving muscle strength, improving mood, um, and just assist with basic activities of daily living. It can also help decrease falls risk um, in the elderly. And general activity recommendations are about a moderate level of exercise um, at least five days a week. 
Um, but what's more interesting is that exercise is really good for the brain. It helps to strengthen the neural networks in our brain. Some of the benefits of physical exercise on brain health include improved learning and memory, increased blood flow and oxygenation to the brain, increased brain plasticity, which we'll talk about, and the ability to facilitate functional recovery after brain injury, stroke, and various neurodegenerative diseases. So what is brain plasticity? Um, Brain plasticity is also known as neuroplasticity, and so we'll use that term throughout our talk today. Um, And neuro refers to neurons, so there are nerve cells in the brain that generate some type of electrical activity. And plasticity means changeable, adaptable, modifiable. Um, So essentially, it's the brain's capacity to reorganize itself, um, the ability to create new connections with activity and different mental experiences. And we're constantly going through neuroplasticity throughout our life. This process begins at birth, it continues into adulthood, and it continues as we age. And what's amazing is that it was thought that brain plasticity sort of ended um, within our early childhood. We didn't think that it continued um, you know, throughout our adulthood. But what we know is that the brain is very plastic throughout life. And so we're sort of capitalizing on this neuroplasticity when we um, do neurorehabilitation with our patients. Uh, what drives brain plasticity? Um, certain activities. So learning new skills, learning to play the guitar, learning a new language, um, driving a new route to work. Um, so learning any type of new skill, like even brushing your teeth with your less dominant hand or changing the way you do your day-to-day activities helps to drive this concept of neuroplasticity or brain plasticity. And when you do that, you're creating new networks, new neural pathways, um, and it's just a healthy thing to kind of do in the aging population, but also something that we work on when we're um, rehabbing our individuals. Um, So this is a little bit of a busy slide, um, but I just wanted to highlight just a variety of mechanisms that exercise can play um, on the brain. And a lot of these processes do happen kind of simultaneously and together. Um, One of the structural changes that happen in the brain with exercise are increased brain blood flow. So brain metabolism um, and function and the ability to remove some of those waste products. Neurotrophic factors. Um, which helps to promote the growth, survival, and maintenance of neurons. And examples of some of these factors are BDNF, IGF, which is insulin growth factor, and NGF, which is nerve growth factor. And I'll talk a little bit more about BDNF because it's highlighted a lot in the, in the literature and in the, in the research. And then neurotransmitters, so increased um, neurotransmitters, which help to increase the signal in between neurons. That also increases with exercise, and that allows communication um, from one neuron to the next. Other structural changes um, on the right-hand side are angiogenesis, which are growth of new blood vessels. So there's new blood vessels that will um, grow from pre-existing capillaries, and it's been found to increase with exercise and Um, enriched environments, so exercising and learning kind of a new skill or a new task. 
Uh, neurogenesis is birth of new neurons. So um, these have been detected in the hippocampus and the olfactory bulb um, in humans. And what happens is that these neurons help to replace dead or dying neurons in the brain, and other um, neurons will help to support the learning process. Exercise in enriched environments, again, they help to promote this idea of neurogenesis in the hippocampus, and they've been shown to help improve learning and memory. And angiogenesis sort of works with neurogenesis. So when they happen, when, when you exercise, those, both of those activities will occur together, and they'll um, persist. So with exercise, you'll notice there's increased angiogenesis up to 48 hours after exercise, and it'll help um, increase, and it's there to support the new um, birth of these neurons during neurogenesis. Uh, synaptogenesis, again, is new synapses that are created in between neurons. This process um, occurs highly during adolescence, but it also increases during learning of new skills. Um, and typically during learning of new motor skills, um, synaptogenesis will be um, increased in the motor cortex and the cerebellum. And then at the end, we have neuroprotection, so preservation of the neurons. And the idea is that exercise helps to prime the brain, um, protecting neurons in response to some type of damage that occurs maybe during a stroke or Parkinson's or MS. So all of these processes are occurring sort of simultaneously with exercise and enriched environments. They're not occurring one separate from the other. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and um, you'll see this a lot in the literature. Um, it's essentially brain fertilizer for neurons, um, and it's very affected by exercise specifically. Um, exercise activates a gene which triggers BDNF production, um, and that's both with physical and mental activity. So BDNF basically helps to keep neurons um, survive and grow, and they help to transmit signals to other neurons via synapses. And this process helps us with remembering and learning new things. Um, so I wanted to, I mentioned hippocampus a few times in the last slide, and so I just wanted to show you a picture of kind of where the hippocampus is. It's a very tiny little section here. Um, but this is where BDNF is found to be produced and um, created. However, it has been shown to be existent in other places of the brain. Um, and this is just a good graph on what BDNF is and how it actually works. Um, so with active states right here, you'll have an active states being an enriched environment, again, physical exercise, mental stimulation, social interactions, all of that will increase BDNF expression. What happens here is that then it increases your neuronal activity. It can also act as an antidepressant. And all of this, the state on the right, is going to help promote neurogenesis, so new growth of neurons, um, cell survival, and again, synaptic plasticity. Moving on to this side, states of depression, um, stress, maternal deprivation, and lack of activity, so no exercise, is going to sort of drive down the neural activity, and it's going to lead to apoptosis or atrophy or cell death. So it's, it's a way of showing how exercise can help increase cell survival, synaptic plasticity, and neurogenesis, which is what we want to do when working with our population. So the big question that I think most people have is, what do I do? 
in order to stimulate neuroplasticity? And does the type of training matter? And I can unequivocally say absolutely. And it's not okay to just sit in front of the TV and do exercise or marching or some sort of movement. And so my goal in the next couple of slides is to explain what exactly you have to do in order to stimulate neuroplasticity. Uh, it's not as easy as one would hope, but it's a very hot term right now in all of the literature and, and online. There are a lot of tr uh, uh, programs that you can use to stimulate neuroplasticity. Our goal is to demonstrate how you stimulate neuroplasticity as it relates to movement. So there are some wonderful researchers who have researched this quite a bit about what exactly do you need in terms of environment for, in order to stimulate this neuroplasticity. Um, so Klyme and Jones are these wonderful human beings who have studied this so that we don't have to study it. Uh, and essentially they've come up with a series of standards that must be met in order to achieve neuroplasticity. We're going to go through each one of these independently, but essentially what they've done is they've given us a checklist both from a PT perspective in physical therapy, but also for how you adapt day-to-day -day life at home. So if it's one thing if you're going to be training with your therapist or you're improving upon a neurological injury, but it's another if you want to use these processes at home just to improve your overall brain health. Both of those are applicable. So step number one, we know that in order for somebody to um, achieve neuroplasticity, they have to use parts of their brain or else they will lose the capability for that brain to function. So I think oftentimes we've heard this phrase of use it or lose it, and we think of it almost more so for muscle or for bone, um, and we think about having to stimulate those muscles or bones in order to keep them strong. But it also applies for people with brain health as well. So it can be applied in many different ways. Uh, one example would be if you were to do games online, for example, the, you, then you're able to stimulate your brain in terms of creating puzzles or solving problems that you wouldn't normally do. Uh, another example would be for somebody who has had uh, perhaps a decline in their strength as the years go by. Um, if they're not utilizing that strength more regularly, then they're going to have a hard time stimulating the, that part of the brain that controls that, that particular movement. So what we want to do is we want to promote the, the idea of using different types of movements and using different types of like novel um, activities so that we can stimulate parts of the brain that wouldn't normally be stimulated. We also know that the more we use something, the better we get at it. So this idea of use it or improve it uh, comes down to the idea of if, if we can give an activity that will help to stimulate the brain um, in a way that we keep practicing and we keep utilizing, then we know that it's going to make that area of the brain stronger. Uh, there's a lot of research out there right now that, that correlates to different types of neurological decline, and we'll actually discuss that later in this talk. But just briefly, uh, we know that sometimes it's not even the area of the brain that's being stimulated. More so, it's actually the, the, the pathway that leads to the brain. And so by using different parts and do, doing different activities, we can actually stimulate the brain more stringently um, and force it to be utilized more effectively. So it becomes uh, quicker at being utilized, and we can use that part of the brain faster, more repeatedly, um, and when we want to use it, we can trigger it. 
Okay. We also know that the, the specificity of the task that you're doing actually matters. And we'll talk quite a bit about this in terms of research as it relates to, to people who have had neurological decline. Uh, but we know that if we want to get better at swimming, then we need to practice swimming. So unfortunately, if I go out and I want to be a champion runner, I have to go out and put in the hard work, and I have to be very specific about my, my uh, practice so that my brain and those parts of the brain that feed that movement and feed that quality uh, will be uh, improved upon. So when people ask, you know, I want, to be, I want to go out and I want to be able to walk with better balance, or I want to be better at remembering things, that means that we need to practice those exact things. So if there's a task that you really enjoy and that you want to get better at, then it sounds almost simplified, but we want you to go out and practice that specifically. Okay. So if I want to get better at biking, I'm going to go out and bike. Okay. We also know that the quantity matters, um, and the quantity is a really high, large amount. And unfortunately, it's an intimidating amount. I'm not even going to throw out a number, because usually once we start saying the exact number of hours of repetition that's required to stimulate change, people run away fearfully, and they never want to come back and see us. Uh, the important thing is, it's not necessarily repetition of exercise per se. It's repetition of a certain task that can translate to that actual activity that you're looking to improve upon. So repetition doesn't necessarily mean that I have to do 80 squats in order to be better at squats. It can also mean that I do, I get up from the chair the same way, utilizing the muscles that we want to use. Um, I, that means that I engage when I get up, go up and down the stairs, maybe I'm using the same muscles in the same way. Uh, and there are also components to that uh, that feed into um, being able to translate from one to the next. Okay. So repetition is key. Uh, we know that we need to repeat the movement or, or the activity of any, any type of activity in order to improve the quality. Okay. And on that note, too, we know that intensity, unfortunately and fortunately, does matter. So if you go to the treadmill, uh, if you're at the gym and you go to the treadmill, you see the person next to you and they're, they're kind of cruising along at a nice slow pace and they look really comfortable and they're probably reading a magazine. And I know I've been this person myself, so shame on me. But, um, but you know, that if it looks really comfortable, it may not necessarily be stimulating neuroplastic change. And that's not to say that it's not causing improvements in other areas. So perhaps maybe it's improving flexibility, or maybe it's improving aerobic capacity. But in terms of actually stimulating change within the brain, uh, it's entirely possible that without pushing the brain and forcing it to do things that aren't necessarily comfortable for it, that it may not uh, instigate a change that like we want. So uh, a great example would be somebody who has had a stroke. Um, if they're on a treadmill and they're walking a very slow and comfortable pace, uh, then that would be comfortable for them, and they'll probably be very happy with us. But what we need to do is we need to stimulate to the point where the body is a little bit uncomfortable. 
And that's not to say to be in pain, but more so so that they're at a point where it's work. Like they actually have to put in this effort in order to stimulate uh, an improvement. And basically that's what starts to feed into those factors that Monica was speaking about, where you get the neurogenesis and synaptogenesis. Uh, Our body basically builds new processes based on the challenges we place on it. And that's the same with bone and the same with muscle and the same with the brain. So the more intense we are and the, the more specific we are about that intensity, the more likely it is that our brain's going to respond to that challenge appropriately. Another thing that we know is that time matters. So that's not to say age matters, although that is another factor. Um, What this means is if there's a new injury, for example, to our brain, we know that we have to get in there the earlier, the better. There was research that occurred that essentially insinuated that the first six months are the only time when you can implement change post-brain injury or post-stroke. And that's since been negated. Uh, But it is true to say that if there's an injury, that the earlier we start retraining the brain, the better it is. It doesn't mean that you have to start at that time or else no change will occur, but it does mean that the brain is primed to make change at that point. So our goal is to pick the time that's most appropriate and to have people come in whenever they can really stimulate the most change. Um, And that includes for our patients that are coming in to change, uh, you know, perhaps get better at a certain type of exercise or to improve their cognitive level. Um, We know that in order to get them in, the earlier that becomes a problem, the better it will be and the more improvement we can anticipate seeing. So the earlier we can see somebody with some sort of injury, the better. If somebody has a neurodegenerative disease, the same thing applies. And we'll discuss this a little bit more completely when we talk about diseases like Parkinson's disease or MS. Um, In those situations, we know that there's going to be a degenerative uh, process that's occurring, but the earlier we stimulate the brain to, to grow new areas, the better. Okay. If we wait too long, then the brain starts to create patterns that are not efficient, and they're not necessarily good quality patterns, specifically for movement, because it's a very complicated process. We also know that salience matters. So uh, for, for those of you that might not be as familiar with this term, it essentially means that we want to do things that are important to the person. So if I am doing something like dancing... I don't care about dancing. I don't, I'm not good at dancing. I don't want to be good at dancing. So if I practice dancing, I might, be, I might get a little bit better at it, but I'm, it doesn't, it's not as meaningful to me. It's not something I want to get better at, and so therefore I'm not going to get as much better at it because I'm not going to put in the effort that's required. Um, the brain really enjoys, one, challenges, but also things that are meaningful to it. So I, I get the question a lot from, from patients who come in. Uh, you know, I've heard this research study, and essentially people have said that if I cycle, then I will reduce my risk of this, this, and this. And so does that mean that I have to cycle? And I, I'm sure I annoy all of my patients, but essentially what I tell them is, do you care about cycling? You know, is there a way that we can modify the treatment so that cycling is not what you necessarily need if you don't care about cycling. Um, and this is important when it, beca- when it comes to uh, neurological rehab as well. If we give somebody a training pattern that they need to work on, but it doesn't mean anything to them, one, they're less likely to practice it. 
And so the idea of them doing their homework is much, it kind of goes down in terms of frequency. But two, also, it's not going to trigger the parts of the brain that, that, that essentially say, wow, good job, you did a great job, and this is meaningful, and this is going to be applied in this way in the future. So we always make an effort as therapists to try and make it applicable and to make it salient for the patient. And it's especially important when we're talking about people with neurological decline. So we come to the age question, because uh, unfortunately I kind of led into it as though age didn't matter. It does matter a little bit. Uh, so we know that the younger you are, the more likely you are to be able to stimulate uh, uh, new parts of the brain. And I think that's the same with almost every part of the body. We know after around the age of 25 that things start to decline. And I think for the vast majority of us, we are all in the same boat in that, in that we're, it's, it's hard. It's like having a car that needs maintenance. So we know that a car that is brand new is going to be easier to keep maintained than one that is quite a bit older. Okay? What this means is that it just takes a little bit more work and a little bit more time and a little bit more effort to stimulate change. So the older you are, it doesn't mean you can't change and you can't learn new things and you can't stimulate neuroplasticity. It just means that we have to adapt and we have to approach things slightly differently. Okay? So if I have somebody who comes in and, and is 95 years old and wants to learn how to adapt uh, their tennis stroke, and that is a true story, somebody really did that, uh, then that's okay. But it means they've learned patterns of movement that we might need to adapt to. Uh, it means that we need, might need to relearn different tasks. Uh, and it also means that it's going to take more time to stimulate new growth and new changes in terms of movement patterns. So it's something that we take into mind, and it's something that I always tell my patients when they come in, that we want to make sure that, that it's a reasonable expectation that, that you may not learn how to do a certain movement as quickly as somebody who's 17 years old. Um, now, they may not learn as well because it's not salient to them. So, you know, it's kind of a win, or, or it's kind of a, a, a give and take a little bit. But we do know that the age matters. We also know that if we teach one skill then there's the potential that that skill can transfer to another skill. So what transference means is that if we have a body of skills and we have a toolbox of skills, um, we don't necessarily have to teach an independent skill for every single thing that we need to learn. Uh, a great example is sit to stand. Uh, it is often very hard for people to get up out of their chair if they have neurological injury. But also, just as we get older and our joints get a little bit stiffer, it takes a lot more weight shift to be able to shift out of a chair, and specifically a low chair. What we know is that we don't have to necessarily practice sit to stand and only sit to stand in order to stimulate change. One thing we can do is we can take components of that sit-to-stand that are similar, and we can repeat those, uh, those components with the patient, uh, again, in a way that's hopefully salient and important to them, and with repetition and all of these other uh, factors, um, but to be able to then take those components and combine them together. So it's similar to taking a puzzle and putting all of the pieces together with the puzzle and essentially saying, okay, I've got my sit-to-stand that I've been working on, but I also have you know, being able to move and reach because that stimulates the same part of the brain that helps me to shift my weight preemptively for my sit-to-stand. Or it might be something like, okay, if I, if I go from sitting to standing and I step forward, what components of that step forward are going to then feed into my sit-to-stand? 
So one of the fun parts about being a neurological therapist or even a physical therapist in general is that we get to take those parts of the puzzle and we get to analyze the movement in a way that combines all of those movements one right after another. So hopefully you're not being given 20 exercises in a, in a, in a period. And if you are, then shame on us and you should yell at your therapist for that. So ideally you shouldn't need to do uh, so many exercises in order to gain those skills that you're looking for. And it also depends on if the movement is more of a continuous movement versus a very discrete movement. Um, if I know that I want to work on cutting, cutting with scissors, and it's a very specific movement, holding the scissors, cutting the scissors, opening and closing, that's one thing. And I want to be specific about that. But if I want to get better at dancing, then I, there are a number of skills that I can take from that dance to be able to work on them part by part and then combine them for the whole. Transference, transference lets us do that so that we can combine your skills and hopefully maximize your time and your efforts and still let your brain be nice and powerful as we do it. We also know, conversely, that it's a two-way street with neuroplasticity. And unfortunately, we can learn bad habits as well. And I think almost all everybody in the crowd can probably attest to this, that sometimes it's easy to learn a bad habit, and then it's really hard to pull it back again and unlearn that habit. Uh, so one, one thing that we like to do as neurotherapists is really kind of harp in on, on what that good habit is. And, um, and I frequently have my patients yell at me a little bit for nagging them. But the reason why we do that is because if you're learning skills, you may not be learning good skills. So just because you're learning skills and your brain is plastic doesn't necessarily mean that everything you learn is going to be magnificent. What we need to do is be, be sure to give you a guide so that the things that you're learning are appropriate and they're really going to stimulate the brain in the right way. We don't want them to be maladaptive. Okay? So the goal is to stimulate the good stuff and avoid the bad stuff. And, for example, if you have a neurological injury which limits your ability to do certain movements, um, one thing that we want to do is make it so that you're not necessarily only learning adaptive stuff, but also stuff that can help to promote, uh, again, new movements, um, appropriate, using the stuff that's been injured, if possible. Okay, so one thing that we know is that the brain without exercise can be a bit of a, of a, of a tricky thing. And once we stop, it's hard to, to stimulate that.
just to reiterate what happened in the video, I know because I could hear some murmurs about the quantity of, of aerobic exercise that's recommended. Uh, it's a lot. It's, it's at least 150 minutes of regular aerobic activity throughout the, throughout the week, and, uh, and a certain percentage of that being high intensity. But the important thing to note is that when we're looking at, at the amount of time and we break it up into days, it actually isn't that bad, particularly if you break it up into chunks throughout the day. Um, keeping in mind that there's a difference between just doing aerobic activity and doing something, again, that is salient and meaningful and that has a little bit more intensity to it. So I'm, I think there's always a little bit of fear involved in like, wow, that sounds like so much exercise. But it could just be walking from the grocery store uh, to your car that's a little bit further out or walking up and down the stairs instead of taking the elevator. And it also depends on health and, and you know what kind of other factors you have in your uh, in your health as well. So ultimately what this comes down to is that we know that there are certain factors that will stimulate that neuroplasticity. We know that without exercise, it can become very detrimental for, for everybody. Um, and we know that ultimately if these changes occur in a normal brain that doesn't have a neurological change, then what is that going to do for those that have some sort of neurological impairment you know, or a disease process that's degenerative? So the fun part about physical therapy is that we get to combine uh, not only what is in a normal brain, but also what is in an abnormal brain. So we get to figure out what is abnormal about it and then figure out which way can we navigate and which way can we circumnavigate so that there's a way that, that somebody can do the functional tasks that they are, are trying to do. Okay, and Monica is going to step in with about multiple sclerosis. So we know what exercise does for our brain, um, and we're going to talk about how um, we can impact that with certain types of neurological diagnoses that we see. Um, so the first one we're going to talk about is multiple sclerosis, and this is just a really general overview of what this disease is. Um, so it's a disease in which the immune system attacks the uh, brain, the spinal cord, and or optic nerves. Um, the immune system attack can cause breakdown um, in the myelin, so that's that yellow portion. Um, and typically, uh, what will happen is the body will either go through um, regeneration of some of this myelin, and whatever parts are not regenerated, the body will lay down scar tissue in lieu of where the myelin is. And so that affects the signal from the brain and the spinal cord to various outputs in the body, so the muscles the sensory organs, um, the eyes, the vestibular system, and it can basically cause the signal to be disrupted, to be impaired, to maybe go halfway through, or maybe to not even have a signal at all. Um, some of the things that might cause um, an attack on, the, uh, attack on the body might be an infection, um, different um, complications from um, pain can be a trigger, stress can be a trigger, um, so there's a lot of different types of triggers. Some triggers, once they're released, you, you know, patients and individuals will find some relief, and others are managed um, typically with medication. There are different types of multiple sclerosis out there. So there's four common types, um, relapsing, remitting, secondary progressive, primary progressive, and progressive relapsing. So you're going to get individuals that kind of um, fit into many of those categories of MS, um, just as a general topic. So symptoms of MS, um, typically it's an autoimmune disease, and it uh, affects females more than males, and there's some type of familial or genetic component there. 
Um, some of the symptoms that we'll see with MS, um, I'll just kind of go from one part of the screen. Um, individuals may have difficulty with um, vision, which does come up quite a bit. Optic neuritis is um, a definite common complaint initially at the onset of a diagnosis. So individuals might have double vision or blurred vision. Um, they might also have issues with dysarthria, so difficulty speaking, dysphagia, which means difficulty swallowing. Um, nystagmus there is written there, and that usually indicates some type of um, impaired eye movement along with some dizziness. Um, also, individuals will have some type of weakness. So that's definitely a common complaint of why people come in to see us if they have a diagnosis of MS. Um, difficulty walking is a big complaint, um, be it weakness in the entire leg or maybe just weakness in the foot. Um, muscle spasticity, which is abnormal tightness in the muscle, that can also be a, a definite um, complaint, um, and that can happen in the leg and the arm and throughout the trunk. Uh, ataxia, which is decreased coordination of the limbs in space. Um, and then bladder and bowel issues can also be um, a symptom. So you can get a wide gamut of things. Some individuals will have a few or one, and some will have multiple systems um, affected, depending on how far they are out with their MS. Uh, exercise considerations with MS. So I think it's important to note, you know, exercise is great, and, we're, and we want to push exercise, and, and we talked about intensity of exercise. Um, but every diagnosis has some of their little um, considerations, and we have to pla place them um, at kind of an important level because we can also make the patient worse if we're not careful. So time to fatigue. Um, fatigue is a really common complaint. About 80% of people with MS will have a complaint of fatigue, and it can vary greatly between individuals. So um, some individuals will have need to take a nap, you know, in the afternoon every day just to be able to get through some of their fatigue, um, and some individuals will be okay. Um, because of the variability, exercise is an important consideration of how intense do we actually push individuals and maybe time of day, you know, how, how do we recommend someone doing exercise or a routine in the morning versus the afternoon? So we have to kind of take all that into consideration. Um, something called Utoff's phenomenon, which um, is heat sensitivity um, related to environmental factors or even exercise itself. So um, in this population, um, many individuals are very sensitive to heat, and it could be the external temperature of the environment, or it could be their internal core temperature that increases with exercise. Um, so with that, we do a lot of education of keeping the body cool, you know, making sure they're properly dressed and properly cooled down during exercise and after exercise, and also staying very hydrated. Um, with this condition, individuals can present with sort of a pseudo-relapse or an exacerbation where they'll actually complain of weakness after exercise um, or difficulty walking or increased muscle tightness or maybe vision changes. Um, and that's important um, because if it lasts longer than 24 hours, then we have to be con you know, considerate of if there's actually a relapse happening. But typically... Those symptoms should go away once the triggers are released. You know, once they're cooled down, they should be able to have um, some of that strength come back or some of the vision come back. Um, so that's, again, just an important consideration. A variability of function. So I didn't talk about this in detail, but individuals with MS will have a wide gamut of function. Um, 
There's people that are initially diagnosed, and we'll see them in the clinic, and they might have higher functioning, to individuals that can't walk, and they're primarily in a wheelchair. Um, So people that might be 20 years out or people that are maybe just a couple years out. And there's importance of exercise with all of these patients, with all of these groups. You know, the main thing is that we're educating early on, and we're also helping people maintain an exercise program um, throughout their disability. And then fluctuating symptoms. So I know I get a lot of patients that will come in the clinic and tell me about different, you know, numbness or tingling that they're having in a hand or a finger or a leg, and then that can change from session to session or it can change day to day. So um, having that variability um, is just another consideration when we're having, you know, going through a rehab process or going through an exercise program. So um, your brain on exercise. So what actually happens in the brain? Um, again, just increased concentration. We talked about this of BDNF, which can be very neuroprotective. Um, the idea of preconditioning. So exercise um, can help to counteract this neurodegenerative process and have a very neuroprotective effect. And that's the importance of like doing exercise early on and maintaining an exercise regimen is that if there is a relapse or if there is something that's going to show decline in function, that they're better able to manage that relapse because they have adequate strength, they have adequate flexibility. Um, one of the things with this group is that we're, we're dealing with you know, training the brain and, and exercising and, and promoting all this great stuff that happens in the brain. But a lot of times people will not exercise and they'll actually just have you know, atrophy from disuse. And so being able to make sure that their strength and their flexibility is intact and prepared for it in case there is a relapse down the road. Um, And then functional reorganization. So in this group, there's increased use of both sides of the brain compared to healthy controls, um, which helps to show that the brain is being adaptive to different changes in the brain, where both sides of the brain are actually working to be able to accomplish different tasks. Um, So we're going to talk about a couple of the activities um, and things that you might see us do in the clinic. Um, So with this group, we do a lot of functional and balance training. Um, So there's a lot of different pictures here. At the top uh, corner here, we have someone that's working on uh, rolling that's maybe assisted. And so that kind of goes into specificity. We're trying to be pretty specific. So a lot of times if somebody's having difficulty with rolling or difficulty with a certain task, we'll practice that task in the clinic, and that is something that we'll have them practice at home. So being specific with the task and practicing that skill over and over is going to help drive this idea of neuroplasticity. Um, Repetition. So the more repetition that you do, the more um, kicks that you do, the more sit-to-stand. So in the corner you have um, someone doing a sit-to-stand. Again, that's very task-specific, um, and adding repetition in the clinic and at home um, helps to drive neuroplasticity. Uh, transference, which is in the corner, is um, you see her on the floor, and she's doing a hands and knees position. And we use some of these functional positions um, to work on building core strength, balance, stability, um, for the purposes of just building strength, um, but also to be able to transfer those skills to help teach someone how to get up off the floor. Um, Maybe getting on the floor to be able to do exercise, but also to work on floor transfers for individuals that are at a fall risk, or if they fall to the ground, how do we get up off the floor? Um, And then um, I put in age, so in this case, um, age doesn't matter. You know, we, we can 
challenge individuals safely. So we have somebody who's got a ball in his hand and who's stepping on a on a wedge here and is doing a very challenging task. So you know, there's a, two motor tasks that are happening simultaneously, um, but it's never too late to you know learn new skills. And the goal is that we challenge individuals. It's not something you might do naturally, but but again, we come down to anything that's very challenging is going to help drive. Um, improved um, function in the brain. So um, aerobic exercise is another intervention um, that we use a lot with this population. Um, it's been shown to have you know, great benefits for cardiovascular health, um, but also to be able to get people to an aerobic level, which is going to drive that concept of intensity that Kat talked about. So not just your leisurely walk, but having some intensity to that walk. So Aerobic exercise comes in a lot of different packages. You know, it can be going outside for a walk. So your exercise could be getting from point A to point B or maybe going to the grocery store and coming back. That might be the extent of what you can do um, versus going for a walk in the community or going hiking or getting on the treadmill, as you can see in the top corner. Swimming. Swimming is a really great activity for MS in particular. Um, the buoyancy of water makes it much easier to move. Um, the water can actually make it a little bit easier for individuals that have abnormal muscle tightness. Um, but it's also a great activity for getting aerobic exercise. And then cycling. So it could be a recumbent bike, a bicycle, or an adaptive bicycle with the hands. Um, and again, it, we're trying to drive the idea of salience. So picking an activity that is fun and that's enjoyable and that's meaningful to you um, is going to help m keep you more maintained to participating and continuing with an aerobic program. And um, use it or improve it. So we're trying to build strength. We're trying to build um, improved patterns of moving by using those muscle groups um, in whatever capacity that they can. Other activities, um, yoga and tai chi are really common activities, um, especially with this population. Uh, both of these activities are wonderful because they are these ongoing activities. They're, they require a regular practice, so they're not just a, you know, a couple times. The more you practice, the more you do this, you're going to improve it, so use it and improve it. Um, they, both of these activities are focused on um, building flexibility, um, creating more of a mind-body connection, um, and also helping to drive improved balance, improved um, movement in general. Um, again, salience. So if it's an activity you enjoy to do, great. Um, if it's not, there's always alternatives. But um, <clears throat> age. So again, you can be able to participate in any one of these activities at any age age group, you can definitely learn something new. And the top picture has um, people that are in different positions. So I know a lot of times people feel they can't maybe do some of these activities because they're not accessible to them. But every activity can be made accessible and made adaptable, and it can be beneficial. So it might not be what your cookie cutter yoga or tai chi class looks like, but everything can be modified. And um, we can definitely help individuals do that. And then transference. So there's a lot of literature out there that shows the benefits of yoga and tai chi because it works on 
strength and mind-body connection and balance and awareness and breath. And all those activities can be helpful to improve walking, to improve um, balance and standing, to improve other functional tasks. So the skills that you learn from one thing will definitely transfer into um, your basic activities. So we're going to move on to... um, a few other diagnoses that we do see in the clinic and talk about the benefits of exercise. Um, so brain injury um, as a whole, we have non-traumatic brain injury and I'm going to focus a little bit more on the stroke, so the CVA um, column, and then um, on the other side, the traumatic brain injury. So um, to talk about traumatic brain injury, it commonly affects males more than females, um, and there's different types of head injury. Um, common Uh, Head injuries that we might see in the clinic are related to falls um, or motor vehicle accidents, uh, sports, concussion-related injuries, um, and maybe work-related injuries. And then some of the unintentional causes, um, military, violent criminal behavior, homicide, suicide attempts, and then domestic violence, child abuse. So um, we're going to come back and look at stroke. So what is stroke? There's two commonly um, two common types of stroke. One is the ischemic stroke. Um, so that's the first picture there, um, with which includes um, a blockage or a clot in the artery. So there's um, pretty much a blockage right there, and then that part of the brain where that blood fl- blood flow is blocked will typically die. Um, and then the hemorrhagic stroke is when there's a blood vessel leading to one part of the brain that will burst and it'll cause bleeding in the brain. A TIA is a transient ischemic attack, and that usually results from just a temporary clot. Um, And typically, when that clot is removed, um, the brain will receive that blood flow again. So the symptoms um, can be very short with a TIA. So common deficits um, in stroke, there can be so many different types of deficits in stroke. It just depends on what part of the brain is affected or what artery was affected. So this is a very general kind of overview. Um, but some of the really common impairments that we'll see, um, maybe even in the clinic, are hemiparesis and hemiplegia. Um, so the right side of the brain controls the left side of the body. So a right CVA will affect um, and produce left-sided weakness and vice versa. Um, We'll commonly maybe see some visual changes, um, so difficulty scanning to the right or the left or different um, regions. Um, Perceptual deficits, which is common with a stroke in the right hemisphere, so difficulty with like spatial orientation. Um, And apraxia, so difficulty with learned movements. Um, Other issues might be mental changes, confusion, disorientation. Um, speech can be affected, and that will uh, is common with a stroke in the left hemisphere. Um, and then some of the other ones that are listed there. So again, they're very variable. Uh, the TIA is at the bottom corner, and again, some of those symptoms, again, will last you know, a few minutes up to 24 hours. So um, those are a little bit more variable. And uh, common deficits in traumatic brain injury. So Traumatic brain injury, you can also see some of the similar um, things that you'll see in a stroke, especially with the hemiparesis um, and some of the um, abnormal muscle tightness as an overview. But specifically in traumatic brain injury, after a brain injury, um, we'll commonly see issues with fatigue, visual disturbances, slower processing, impulsiveness, um, dizziness, 
concentration is affected, uh, memories affected, lethargy, and then a big one is emotional outbursts. So um, exercise considerations with just brain injury as a whole. Uh, fatigue post-stroke and post-traumatic brain injury is really common, especially right after the injury, um, and that makes rehab just a little more challenging because we want to respect the body, we want to respect the brain because it needs to go through some healing, um, but we also don't want people to sort of sleep the whole thing off. We want to make sure that we're stimulating the brain and stimulating activity. Um, so it is a balance of rest and also exercise. Cognitive and memory issues um, can really affect exercise, um, partly because we have def- you know decreased carryover. A lot of individuals may or may not remember the tasks that we're working on in therapy, so they might need a lot of extra cues, a lot of reminders, a different way to educate, maybe having caregivers become a little bit more involved. Um, so that can affect the carryover. It can affect what they do at home. It can affect their ability to practice. Emotional and behavioral issues. Um, so this is really common in brain injury. Um, individuals might have a lot of outbursts. Um, they might need a lot of cues for redirection to participate in tasks. Um, so this is kind of common within at least the first um, maybe month or month and a half after a traumatic brain injury for individuals that are a little bit more involved. Um, and typically those patients will kind of go through a progression of inappropriate behavior to more appropriate behavior. Um, but that's just, uh, they may also not go through that. And we might have to have that consideration um, even for people that are six months out. Uh, paresis, spasticity, sensory issues. So again, it just depends on the level of the patient and, and what we're working with, with how much weakness, how much abnormal muscle tightness is there, and then how we can work on that in, in building an exercise program and in doing a re- rehab, rehabilitation. And then when to initiate exercise. So I know right post-brain injury, um, exercise at any type of significant severe level might actually worsen or hinder recovery. Uh, the brain kind of goes through an energy crisis and it is trying to deal with the effects of a brain injury. And so adding exercise into that piece um, that is at a more of an intense level might actually worsen the outcomes. Um, so usually those individuals are, are you know having a lot of tests. They might be dealing with a lot of things and so typically that the level of exercise that we're going to push someone at isn't probably going to come till um, a couple weeks to a month, maybe outside, out after um, their injury. So your brain on exercise, so the things that occur in the brain with exercise is an increased activation of the intact side of the brain. Um, so the intact side of the brain kind of takes over a little bit to help with the involved side of the brain. Uh, axonal sprouting, so new nerves growing, new axons growing for new communication. So areas of damage that might not communicate anymore. We're allowing other parts of the brain to um, increase their sprouting of their axons to be able to assist with that communication. New pathways or new neural pathways are created. Again, increased BDNF production. So we're coming back to that um, topic of BDNF. So that promotes neuronal repair, so repair of the neurons. And overall, improved secondary prevention, improved cardiovascular health, improved metabolic function, and overall improved blood flow. 
So some of the activities that we um, do for training with this population, um, locomotor training I did as a sort of a general compass of working on walking capacity. So with this population, walking is definitely affected. It's one of the things that we as physical therapists work on um, in rehabilitation. And there's many ways to work on retraining gait or how do we teach people how to walk again. Um, Overground walking, so just practicing, you know, overground walking with an assistive device if that's needed, um, to using um, something we call body weight supported treadmill training or overground training. So there's a couple of pictures um, in the corner of an individual on a treadmill with a type of body weight support. And um, in the middle picture, you have someone in a harness um, who's having assistance with stepping. And at the bottom corner, we have an, a body weight support with an overground setup. So the idea is that we're putting somebody in a harness and they're connected to a piece of equipment, whether it's through the ceiling or whether through its machine, and it um, can hold the weight of the individual, and it can also just be used for safety. So this is a great way that we're able to drive these principles of repetition and intensity um, that we talked about to promote some of these neuroplastic changes by keeping individuals safe. So um, on the treadmill, we're able to get the treadmill speed maybe up to about a mile an hour or maybe a mile and a half hour. So something that somebody might not do overground, we can actually push people a little bit harder on the treadmill. Um, and then those skills can also then transfer to overground. So we can take it off the treadmill and do it overground. And then in that corner off to the right um, with that picture, then work on just overground walking in general. Um, so the idea is that we're pushing repetition, we're pushing intensity, um, Specificity, you know, we're, we're, if you want to improve walking, we got to practice walking. We can't practice another task. So we want to get people up and walking as, as soon as possible. And again, use it and improve it. So using those muscle groups will help improve the skill. Um, upper extremity retraining. Um, it's a general uh, sort of intervention that we do for individuals that might have weakness in the hand or the upper extremity. And there's a lot of different ways that we work on this training. The top right-hand corner has um, a lady with a mitt on her hand, and she's, um, I think, buttering bread, uh, pouring a cup of water, and then doing some like fine motor tasks with her finger. And um, this is a type of constraint-induced therapy, and it constrains the use of the good upper extremity, and it forces the use of the affected upper extremity. Um, so we're, again, going to forced use, repetition, practice. Um, this type of intervention is actually done for several hours at a time. So it can be very intense for the individual, but the outcomes have um, been shown to be really good. Um, but it only works really well for individuals with adequate upper extremity function. So for people that don't have any movement in their hand or significant tightness, they might not be the best intervention. Um, and at the bottom corner, we have someone working on an actual task, so task specificity. If your task is to be able to fold the clothes or do the laundry um, or put the dishes in the dishwasher, um, you have to practice that task. So practicing the task um, over and over repetitiously is going to help improve some of those motor patterns. 
Um, at the bottom corner, we have someone reaching. So we'll do a lot of just functional retraining, um, whether it's reaching with their affected arm or weight bearing on their affected arm. Um, but again, reaching for different things and also practicing that task several times. So that's something that we might do in the clinic or give some something like that for them to do at home. And then at the top, um, our collection of pictures um, with robotics, which is kind of an emerging intervention um, for upper extremity retraining for stroke and brain injury. Um, this helps to, this basically uses a computer interface um, to, you know, use video games or a gaming system, not a gaming system, but a, um, on a computer screen, and to be able to practice moving their upper extremity or their hand. Uh, can also work well for individuals that might not have a lot of function in the upper extremity. So other ways to just keep driving that repetition and intensity. Um, and then a final activity um, that I've used in the clinic is exergaming, which um, a lot of people might have some type of um, something like this at home, maybe with a Wii. Um, but it basically uses uh, video games to do retraining. So we can do motor retraining, be it in a standing position, a sitting position, but we're driving the use of the legs, the arms, to work on balance. Um, and we're able to transfer some of those skills, too, to like regular overground things. So if it's walking and balance that we need improved, um, some of those skills can be transferred to, to that. So you have the individual on your Wii balance um, board doing some, um, playing a game there. And the nice thing is that it requires a lot of cognition. It requires hand-eye coordination, a lot of practice to learn how to use the remote in the first place, and then figure out what you're doing on the screen. There's variable levels that you can use. You can challenge yourself by, you know, starting with an easier game and then progressing to some more difficult games. Um, and then also just stepping responses. So you have the person in the top right-hand corner who's actually moving his body through those ranges. And so you're not just standing, but you're actually um, transitioning your body throughout space. So the video games can be, I think, sometimes even more helpful than the therapist telling the patient what to do because the individuals can learn a little bit easier when they're looking at a screen. Um, but again, we're using it, improving, and um, salient, so picking activities that can be enjoyable for someone. Okay, and I wanted to take a quick straw poll. How many people in, in the audience right now know somebody who has Parkinson's disease? Almost everybody. All right, perfect. Then hopefully this will be helpful, and hopefully you can take these, ta these tools home to the people that you know and your loved ones uh, for ideas. Uh, specifically with Parkinson's disease, it's really complicated, and I don't want to go too in-depth because I could spend the entire time and you guys would probably hate me. But I'll give a general overview uh, because it's becoming more and more common in um, in the U.S. specifically, but throughout the world, there's a greater incidence of Parkinson's disease that's occurring. Um, and, and basically what it comes down to is that there's a loss of dopamine within the striatum, which is a part of the basal ganglia. Um, and the important thing to know about Parkinson's disease is that it's not necessarily a disease that directly impacts the cortical portions of the brain. Uh, so whereas something like MS or stroke would affect a direct part of the white matter in the brain. Um, what the basal ganglia does is it works as a modifier. 
So its job is to either slow down or to increase movement. And so all of the decision-making within the brain comes down through the basal ganglia. And if you have a basal ganglia that's working in an improper way, then what happens is you start to have either too much movement or too little movement. Uh, and in fact, Parkinson's disease is a combination of too little and too much movement. So initially, the dopamine within that striatum in the basal ganglia is, it starts to degenerate, and we start to lose the capability to produce dopamine. Uh, and dopamine is used for a variety of different functions, uh, but specifically in this uh, uh, this type of disease process, it's used for motor control, but also for non-motor um, uses as well. Um, so the dopamine starts to fire less, uh, and then what happens is the basal ganglia tries to fire in uh, in combination. So it tries to create a more efficient pattern because uh, the dopamine is diminished. So the brain's idea is, oh my gosh, let's let's try and keep our function the same way. And in doing that, then you get this all or none movement. And you start to get too little or too much movement, but most often too little. And that's where you start to have symptoms where somebody is quite stiff um, or rigid, as we would call it. And it, their ability to move from movement to movement becomes significantly less, uh, less rapid, I should say. It also changes how your sensation is perceived. So it may not be that you, you have a change in how you actually feel something, but the way that you actually process it is much different. So the, the difference is, is that everything's kind of running through that basal ganglia, and if we start to have changes in that, in that ability to fire, then we start to get some, uh, some symptoms. So the symptoms, the, the big symptoms uh, of idiopathic Parkinson's disease are listed here. Uh, and I don't want to discredit those that have young onset Parkinson's or different subtypes of Parkinsonism, because uh, there are a wide variety of those, but they're often more rare, uh, and they're, they're not always diagnosed uh, as rapidly. So oftentimes people are diagnosed with idiopathic Parkinson's disease first. And those are the symptoms that you would see... Uh, for, for example, like rigidity, where the body gets really stiff, um, and they suspect that that rigidity is coming from a, a tension within the inner tiny little muscles in the spine. So the body gets completely stiff, and it's, it's incapable of reducing that stiffness, um, particularly in the muscles in the front of the body. Um, that leads to a stooped posture, and that can also ch make changes in what's called postural stability. So, for example, if, if I start to lose my balance, my body naturally feels that I'm losing my balance, and I will take a step, or I'll respond, or I'll reach, and I'll try and catch my balance again. Um, with Parkinson's disease, not only is the ability to take the step impaired, the ability to feel that they're off balance is also impaired. So that's where that sensory processing comes into play, and we start to have impairments that are really severe, uh, even though it's more of a combination of impairments, to address one wouldn't be enough. So we get to address all of them. Um, we also know that there's going to be a change in the speed with which we can do movement for, for most people with Parkinson's disease. Um, and what happens is that the, because of that dopamine firing is abnormal, um, what will happen is you'll start to have a change in the, all of the movement that you're putting out. Uh, and that would include blinking. Uh, it includes swallowing. Uh, everything is more delayed. Uh, your movement is smaller, and it's also slower. Okay, so it makes simple movements much more complicated. Um, and with that being said, I think there, there's a, a general 
theme that I've heard from a lot of my patients where they aren't sent to therapy until it's later in the game. And so the idea is that they'll, they'll get exercise, but they'll get exercise when they're starting to have impairments already. What we want to do is we want to stimulate that change early, and that's where that time matters. So for, for patients that have Parkinson's disease, immediately after their initiation or, or their disease process, we want to start that process right away. And that is because they're more neuroplastic at that time frame. So the earlier, the better. Okay. And we can be pretty aggressive with it, but there are a couple things that we need to think about in terms of exercise considerations uh, because of the changes that occur with the slowness of movement, um, with postural instability. We want to make sure that everybody is safe. So one of the biggies that I see is orthostatic hypotension. Um, and what that means is when you have a change in posture, the, the normal response would be for your autonomic system to keep the blood pressure up so that there isn't an immediate drop um, when you stand or when you move or when you transition from lying down to sitting up. In Parkinson's disease, not only is that autonomic process impaired, but also the medication that's taken to replace the dopamine also causes orthostatic hypotension. Um, and as many of us can attest to, the more medication you're on, the more likely you are to have orthostatic hypotension. So it happens all the time where you get up, you feel a little dizzy or lightheaded, and you're like, oh, I need to hold on to this for a minute until your blood pressure stabilizes. With somebody with Parkinson's disease, that stabilization may not be as quick. So we need to compensate for that by doing things like wearing TED hose or compression stockings, or maybe increasing the time to transition from one movement to another, um, or even doing something as simple as ankle pumps to pump the blood back up again, uh, not necessarily relying on the autonomic system to regulate. Okay. Another thing that, that happens is that not only do we have slowness of movement, but we also have slowness of the bowel and, and bladder function as well. And so constipation is a really big side effect. Uh, and so as a result, people can get nauseated or they can have pain in their stomach. Uh, and actually, exercise helps to stimulate normalcy in that movement. Uh, but it might be a limiter. And pre-exercise uh, pre voiding or, um, or defecating often can help if there is change in how, how the bowel and bladder is functioning. Um, we also know that fatigue is a really under, understudied uh, uh, side effect, as well as apathy. Um, and those are part of those non-motor symptoms that dopamine can trigger, uh, that typically dopamine will help with. Uh, but unfortunately, when we lose that dopamine, then we also lose some of the mood regulation. And we also lose the ability for, again, the firing to occur normally. So some of the fatigue can be from the side effects of actually having to combat the rigidity and the tremor and the the postural instability, and then some of it can actually be from, from the disease process itself. Um, we also know that uh, for postural instability, um, we know that because people are more rigid, that they're less likely to be able to, to initiate these automatic safety responses if they lose their balance. So for anybody with Parkinson's disease, you may see what's called festination, where the, the feet will sh um, move, they'll kind of shimmy back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then sometimes people will just freeze and they'll start to fall. Um, both of those are... are 
basically have a contribution from postural instability as well as the rigidity. So one thing we want to keep in mind is, is there a way to make our exercise safe? Um, it does not preclude somebody from doing exercise. And I really want to emphasize that because I think sometimes we think if somebody is falling, then they shouldn't do exercise. But I think then we just need to be more creative about how we modify. Um, another thing to think about uh, is, is what kind of cognitive impairment might be occurring. Um, and studies have shown that mild cognitive impairment is extremely common in patients with Parkinson's disease. And how that's gauged is um, thinking about uh, doing normal activities of daily living. It means that you notice some impairments in your cognition, but you're not necessarily limited in your ability to do all of your activities of daily living. That would be termed more of a dementia. But they're finding that more and more people with Parkinson's disease, even at, at initial onset, uh, are, are demonstrating symptoms of mild cognitive impairment. So it means that, for example, if you're a busy environment, you want to limit how much information is being processed. Because if you think of, of the, the basal ganglia as a funnel, if there's a, a too much stuff going into the funnel at once, and that includes cogn uh, different environments and, and cognition, uh, things that require the brain to work really rapidly, then it's going to lead to more likely festination and freezing. So all of that stimulation gets funneled through the basal ganglia. So we have to be careful in thinking about what kind of stimulation we're giving uh, and how much information are we giving and how much cueing are we giving. And then also we want to think about uh, medication timing. So for dopamine replacement with folks with Parkinson's, um, they often take something called Cinemet or carbidopa levodopa. What that does is it replaces the dopamine in a, in a method that can cross the blood-brain blood barrier. Um, when, when, you've had, when you're taking dopamine for a long period of time, there's more of a likelihood where you're getting too much and then too little. And then there's this nice window where everything is on in terms of how well the medication is, uh, is working for you. But unfortunately, it's a really fine balance, and, um, and as you use more and more medication, the likelihood of being too high or too low is much greater. And so what we want to do is train people when they're on their medication and then have them practice when they're off. So when, I, when folks come into the clinic, we want to know, you know, where are you in your medication? Is, is it possible at the next session for you to come in when you're on meds? Can we schedule your appointment? Or can we schedule your yoga class at a time when you're optimally medicated? Because it'll make a huge difference in terms of how the brain is turning on. Okay, so we know that uh, the, with exercise, the brain necessarily isn't producing more dopamine, so I think if there's anything to take away from this slide, it is that the, the pathways that feed from the muscle all the way back up to the, to the brain are actually becoming more effective and faster. It's not necessarily that exercise stimulates improvements in the amount of dopamine that's there. It just makes it so that the dopamine is present in the, between the, the uh, neurons for a longer period of time. So that means the brain becomes more effective at using the dopamine that it does have. Uh, it does mean that somebody who is in the later stage of Parkinson's disease is probably going to have a bit more difficulty in terms of maximizing on those gains. But it's one reason why we want people to come in as early as possible. I mean, literally, as soon as they're diagnosed, let's get them started on a, a training program. And that's pretty consistent with MS, with stroke. The earlier, the better. This, the the 
faster we can get you in and start stimulating the brain in the proper way, the less likely it is that your brain is going to get rigid in its components and in terms of how it responds to tasks. Okay. So a couple programs that are really popular with, with Parkinson's disease. Some of you may have heard of these as well. And they're ones that I hear people talk about often. One is called LSVT, or Lee Silverman Voice Technique. They have a big program, and they have a loud program. One is designed for speech. One is designed for, for uh, mobility. Um, I will say I'm, I'm certified in both, but I like the, the power program better. The LSVT program has similar exercises that you're doing consecutively for over a four-week period of time uh, with four, four different treatments per week. Um, the idea is that you then transfer those to functional tasks. In the Parkinson Wellness Recovery, or POWER program, what you're doing is you're taking similar exercises, but you're focusing more on transitional movements and then being able to adapt those movements much more rapidly uh, in day-to-day life. And there's more of a component of community wellness as well with the Parkinson Wellness Recovery. So we know that in both of these exercise programs, they both have their advantages, and I feel free to come up and talk to me about them afterwards as well, because um, I could talk your ear off. But, um, but, the, but we know that both of them are going to really get to the specifics about functional movements that are difficult for people with Parkinson's disease. Um, we know that also it's going to stimulate parts of the brain that, that somebody who has a dopamine depletion is not necessarily going to stimulate. Um, and then we also know that the functional tasks of doing, for example, a big sit to stand would then transfer to different to other functional components as well. We also know that there's a ton of research out there supporting dance, uh, and not just any dance, but um, dances that are more complicated or that have multiple steps. Um, Argentinian tango is a big one. There's a lot of evidence for that, as well as line dancing. Uh, And so what it ultimately comes down to is, is it a complex movement? And does it require learning of new movements? And is it stuff that requires um, a reduction in rigidity? So are you moving? Are you rotating? Are you learning to go forward and backward and multi-directionally and following tasks of one person telling you to keep one beat and while also not stepping on your partner's toes? Um, We know that with dance specifically, uh, that really hits on the salience point because a lot of people do like to dance, and it will also stimulate an automaticity to people's movement, uh, and we like that. We also know that it'll help, again, to stimulate parts of the brain that, that, that are multifocal rather than just this one part of the brain if I were to do, say, a bicep curl. Okay. And we also know that there's uh, more and more evidence out there to support uh, kind of aggressive movements like boxing. Um, Rock-steady boxing is, an area, is, a, is a type that's very local to this area. Um, it was initiated in Indianapolis, but they have several gyms in this area as well. And, uh, and so people are getting out there and doing boxing tasks, not one-on-one with each other, because we don't want to stimulate uh, brain breakdown uh, as people are hitting themselves in the, in the head. We don't want that. Um, but what it is, is is being able to work on boxing moves and weight shifting and being able to cross the body and rotate uh, and doing that in a really adaptive way for people with Parkinson's. So it's, it's designed specifically with that in mind. Um, and it really, I've, I've seen the class, it's very intense. So that intensity button really gets hit. 
Um, and then also there's been more and more evidence about uh, cycling and specifically about tandem cycling. So it's not just cycling, but it's actually tandem cycling with somebody forcing the person with Parkinson's um, to push the stimulation. And that's where the intensity comes in, and that's where you have to really push the repetition at a very high level. Okay. And the, the, the ultimate take-home, too, is um, ultimately if you have a neurological problem or if you just feel like you need a tune-up, I would suggest going in to see your physical therapist. I have our information listed here, but that doesn't mean you have to see us. So we're here if you need us. And specifically, if you have a neurological injury, I would strongly suggest seeing somebody who has uh, experience working with patients with neurological injury. So we, what we really want is somebody who is a specialist, so that that way they can really cater the program to you. Okay. Okay. And with that being said, any questions? Yes. So the question was that Parkinson's disease is increasing in the U.S., and it, was there any reason why? Is there a reason why? Do we know why? There have been a number of epidemiological studies, and, um, and they have found that there are certain chemicals, uh, particularly benzenes, that will stimulate Parkinson's. But, um, but the majority of, of Parkinson's disease that's diagnosed is idiopathic. So they're not quite sure what factor of environmental and genetic components actually trigger Parkinson's disease, in most cases, because there are genetic and familial components and mutations that can occur. Uh, but for the majority of people, they have, they have not developed one trigger that, uh, that, that leads to Parkinson's disease. How long do we work with these individuals in the clinic um, with any one of these diagnoses? So um, I know for a lot of my patients um, that will come as an outpatient, um, I think the key is trying to build a kind of home exercise program or a program that they're going to be able to do at home. Um, and I often like to follow individuals for maybe over a longer period, so I might not see them as frequently in the clinic, just depending on what their issues are, um, but maybe like to follow them for, you know, maybe two months or two and a half months period just to see how they're progressing with the home exercise program. There are individuals, if, if there is an early stroke onset and they're coming into the clinic for outpatient, um, if we can get them in more frequently, that's been shown to be more beneficial because we can help drive some of those neuroplastic changes. Um, but the idea is that we are here to help support and build a home exercise program that they can continue with at home and in the community. Yeah, and I would say there's more and more evidence, too, that having frequent tune-ups, if you will, is more effective than doing one huge bout of therapy, and particularly for people with neurological uh, with neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease or MS, because we know that there isn't a cure for it, unfortunately, right now. Uh, so more and more evidence supports doing shorter bouts that are six to eight visits, for example, and then pausing treatment and having somebody come back in an, another two to three months or four months for a tune-up. And usually that means that there's more pressure for them to perform their exercises, and they know that they have to kind of maintain that strength and mobility. And then when you come back to therapy, then you start to increase that challenge even more. And, and more so, too, there's more of a push for community integration. And what kinds of exercise classes can you do uh, in addition to the physical therapy and the skilled therapy? And so a lot of times we'll work with personal trainers or we'll work with different groups in the community and we'll kind of send our patients that way so that it's not just us in therapy. It's using those, those adaptive um, techniques that we've taught in classes, in yoga, in, you know, in the rock steady boxing, um, going at, into their own gyms at home. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.